So last couple of weeks, every time, well, not everybody, but people see me and they ask me how I'm doing because of these recent diagnoses. I'm doing fine. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says, I'm doing fine, and wear that to all our crossway functions. But it's a good reminder, my wife and I were talking about it this morning, the reality is we are all just a heartbeat away from heaven. God is sovereign over our health, and he has already determined the length of our days in eternity past. We cannot add to them or take away from them. So you live in the moment, and you live to please him. We live in the moment. We live to please him. So this morning, uh, we are going to be uh, looking at a couple of topics regarding the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, more works of the Holy Spirit, and these are things that happen um, when the previously spiritually dead individual is brought to spiritual life, regenerated, born again, and they receive the gift of faith, which now, in their regenerate state, they are able to exercise trusting in Christ to salvation. Uh, And everyone that is regenerated, they have their intellect, emotions, and their will uh, renewed, uh, restored, and enabled to come to Christ in saving faith. Now, it's all through the regenerating work of the Spirit. At the moment of regeneration and faith, there's a number of things that that happen simultaneously. Uh, We talk about the order of salvation, but probably more likely in reality, these things are all happening at once. Uh, The Holy Spirit, at the moment of regeneration and faith, indwells the new believer, takes up spiritual residence in the heart of the believer, and Christ baptizes the new believer in or with the Holy Spirit, and the believer is then commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of these things began or were initiated at Pentecost some 2,000 years ago. So first, let's look at uh, some of the passages, and and I'm going to be reading some fairly long passages because they're really important to understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit and filling. So these uh, first passages that I'm going to look at refer to the indwelling of the Spirit uh, or the Holy Spirit actually living within the believer, and all true believers all born-again believers are indwelt by the Spirit. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And then there are six more primary passages that refer to the Spirit's indwelling. Romans 8, 11, another example, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Also, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19, Ephesians 2.22, 2 Timothy 1.14. And all of those passages appear to refer to the indwelling of the individual believer with the exception of Ephesians 2.22. So Ephesians 2.22 seems to refer to the Spirit's indwelling of the church corporately. Now, quick summary of indwelling before we move on to baptism. Indwelling always takes place at the moment of regeneration and salvation. 
It is a universal experience. All believers, without exception, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is a permanent and irrevocable indwelling, so you don't have to worry, as David did, that the Spirit would be taken from him. Now, once you are a believer and indwelt, the Spirit will never leave. And it can be said that uh, the indwelling of the Spirit is the foundation for everything else that follows in the Spirit's work. Baptism, filling, sealing, guiding, enlightenment, all of those okay, are foundational forward from indwelling. Now, let's look at uh, baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. First of all, this is promised and predicted by John the Baptist in the Gospels. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In Mark 1.8, I have baptized you with water. Is this not working? Yeah. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Then John 1.33, who, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So in these passages, what you should notice is that there's three different types of baptism being spoken about. Uh, water baptism of John, which is, baptize, uh, which is baptism symbolizing repentance. Uh, baptism with the Holy Spirit, which we're going to see um, is baptism into or inclusion into the body of Christ, the universal church, and then baptism with fire. Baptism with fire refers to the final judgment of unbelievers. And then after Christ's resurrection, he, he also prepares the, the disciples uh, for spirit baptism before his ascension in Acts 1, 3 through 9. And this would be the fulfillment of John 16, 7, which we talked about a few weeks ago, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, what's about to happen at Pentecost will be what Jesus was referring to, and this will be the, this the birth of the church. And some of the things that you see happening won't be repeated. The church will be established, and it will grow from that point forward. So let me read Acts 1, 3 through 9 very important, real significant passage regarding baptism of the Holy Spirit. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that's that reference back to John 16, 7. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, 
It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come, has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, as you read through that passage, it is pretty evident that the disciples uh, didn't really understand what was about to happen, what was going to happen. They're thinking that Jesus is ready to establish his kingdom on earth, um, which was not the case, and Jesus redirects their, their thinking or their thought process um, to expect the coming of the Holy Spirit instead. His kingdom would eventually come, but first the Spirit would come, the church would be established, and the gospel would be taken to the world. So after these instructions, Jesus ascends into heaven, and then 10 days later, at the Feast of Weeks, which is otherwise known as Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends in a powerful and unique way, and it's never to be repeated again. The things that, like I said, the things that you see happening at Pentecost are not repeated. Some are, but most are not. And this would be uh, the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel 2, 28 through 32, which is actually quoted in this passage, um, the full passage, <clears throat> and it is the beginning of the church. This is Acts 2, 1 through 11. I'm going to read that whole passage as well. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at, the, at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So this was both the baptism of the Holy Spirit and special filling of the, the Holy Spirit. Baptism, uh, the baptism that was promised uh, by Christ in Acts 1-5, and it was the unique, it was unique in the visible descent on the believers of what appeared to be tongues of fire. And this never happens again in Scripture or in church history. It was the baptism into the body of Christ of the 120 or so believers that were gathered there. This was the inaugural birth of the church. These disciples were spiritually incorporated into the church through spirit baptism, and at the same time, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, which manifested in their speaking in tongues, which were other known languages. 
that they had never known, never studied prior to this event. And it's important, it's an important point to note that not everyone who was baptized in the Spirit in Acts experienced speaking in tongues the way the believers at Pentecost did. In Acts 2.41, it says that about 3,000 souls were added to the church, and there's absolutely no mention of anyone amongst that 3,000 speaking in tongues. In Acts 8.14 through 17, Samaritans believe, received the Holy Spirit, but without speaking in tongues. In Acts 10.44 through 48, the household of Cornelius, who were all Gentiles, they believed, and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they do speak in tongues. And then in chapter 11, Peter has to defend why he was fraternizing with these Gentiles, and he explains that they had believed they'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit just as they, the Jews, had been, and this was a sign that there was no longer any distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but that they were all being saved, included in the body of Christ. And then in Acts 16, people are saved, baptized into the church, and again, no mention of tongues being manifested. Then in Acts 19, 1 through 7, 12 men in Ephesus are baptized, and they do speak in tongues. Then there's no mention of speaking in tongues anywhere else in the New Testament except 1 Corinthians as a spiritual gift, but not as a sign or as evidence of being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. So, the question is, why was tongues manifested with the baptism of the Holy Spirit? In some cases, and in some cases not. So, theologians and some great Bible teachers um, have determined, or it is their estimation, that it is primarily evidence that people were being saved and incorporated into the church from this broad range of people groups. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles were added to the church, and to illustrate this unity in the church of these varied and often uh, mutually hostile groups, the same sign that occurred at Pentecost with the Jews took place amongst these various groups, speaking in foreign languages. And it was not the norm, uh, but it occurred in a few recorded instances as the church expanded over the next several years from Pentecost forward, um, from believing Jews in Jerusalem out to the Gentile world. So that is what seems to be taking place. Now, in all of these historical records of baptism in the Holy Spirit, there's no actual explanation of what that baptism is or what it accomplishes. Uh, all you have is a few instances where, you know, a few people spoke in tongues, uh, but it is an exception. There's no explanation of its meaning until you get to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where Paul clarifies it. It says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So, Baptism in, by, or with the Holy Spirit takes place when Jesus, the head of the church, from Pentecost forward, by the Holy Spirit, spiritually incorporates believers into his body, the church. 
This happens at the moment of regeneration and placing faith in Christ for salvation. Believers are then spiritually united to and become participants in the universal church, the universal body of Christ. As with regeneration, it is a one-time, irrevocable um, event, and it is solely the work of God, sovereign work of God. Jesus baptizes, he immerses believers into the church through the agency of the Holy Spirit, and, and the church is like a, a living organism that's made up of many and varied parts that all have an important purpose and function within the body. Romans 12.4 makes that clear, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, and as one people of God, we are growing into the holy temple of God who dwells in each of us individually and corporately within the church. Ephesians 2.21 through 22, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul indicates here that this is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, and anyone or any teaching that would attempt to make some kind of distinction between or, or create two categories of Christians, those who are baptized in the Holy Spirit and those who are not baptized in the Holy Spirit, that teaching should absolutely be rejected. And that, that is the teaching of some Pentecostal and charismatic churches. Scripture doesn't make any such distinction uh, because all believers, all believers at the moment of regeneration and saving faith are immediately baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ and into Christ. So based on the scriptures that we've looked at, um, I'm going to give you a few points in summary. Most of these are in your notes as well. The record in Acts shows us, first of all, a unique and dramatic picture of the birth of the church with the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit, manifestations such as the sound, like rushing wind, tongues of fire coming down on people's heads, and a multitude of people speaking in tongues. You never see these signs again, with a few recorded exceptions of speaking in tongues, speaking in foreign languages among a couple of different people groups. The church is inaugurated, the, the Spirit comes, and the church <clears throat> grows from that point forward. Again, Spirit baptism is a sovereign work of God, and no one is ever commanded to seek the baptism of the Spirit or to pray for the baptism of the Spirit. It is a one-time, irrevocable event, just like indwelling, and it always uh, accompanies regeneration, uh, salvation, and indwelling. Spirit baptism is evidence of salvation, but it is not a measure of spiritual maturity. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by speaking in tongues at Pentecost and in the first few years of the growth of the church, where uh, it was a sign that God was doing something new. And, and all people, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, were being included. Um, into the church. So after these initial events recorded in Acts, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that all believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. 
uh, takes place at the moment of conversion or regeneration and saving faith, and it places us in Christ. It can be said to be a positional experience in that it spiritually incorporates believers into the church and into Christ. Romans 6, 3 through 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism in the Spirit or with the Spirit is baptism into or inclusion into the church, the body of Christ, and baptism into Christ. Now, baptism of the Holy Spirit, by placing us all equally in the church, eliminates all class or rank distinctions among believers. Uh, that's um, pointed out, or Paul points it out in Galatians 3, 27 through 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a result of baptism with the Holy Spirit. After Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, is accompanied by speaking in tongues, but it is not the norm. In fact, it was recorded as occurring only a few more times in Acts. And then finally, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit are not the same. They are separate and distinct works. The disciples received both at Pentecost in fulfillment of the promise of Christ in Acts 1.5. This was accompanied, again, by speaking in tongues. After Pentecost, other believers were added to the church and filled with the Spirit with or without speaking in tongues. Later in Ephesians 5.18, Paul commands all believers... Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And also, 1 Corinthians 12.30, Paul makes it clear that not all believers have or will have the gift of tongues. Spirit baptism is applied to all believers from Pentecost forward, spiritually incorporating them into the body of Christ. It's distinct from being filled with the Spirit, and it's only recorded as accompanied by tongues in a few instances. I know I keep saying that over and over again, but it has to be, um, have to emphasize that because it's where lots of misunderstanding takes place. Now, I want to talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit since that is often confused with baptism. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> to be filled with the Spirit is to be completely yielded to and in submission to the control and empowerment of the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit can result in Spirit-enhanced ability, such as boldness to preach the gospel. Spirit-produced godly character as seen in the fruit of the Spirit. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament... Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, would indwell or fill uh, specific individuals on specific occasions for very specific purposes, select individuals like um, leaders, kings, prophets, judges, were filled or indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but that filling, that indwelling was not permanent. <clears throat> In some cases, the Spirit was said to come upon individuals 
to accomplish specific tasks uh, like Moses, Othniel, Gideon, Samson, and David, Isaiah uh, are some examples. In other cases, there are direct references to filling, such as Bezalel to construct the tabernacle, that's Exodus 31.3, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Joshua to lead Israel, Deuteronomy 34.9. Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the Spirit of wisdom, and Ezekiel to speak God's word, Ezekiel 3.24, but the Spirit entered into me. Those are examples of the Spirit's empowerment to accomplish God's purposes through leaders and prophets. They are actually considering the the size of the Old Testament writings. Those are actually very, very rare and certainly not the norm for the Old Covenant believer. Now, in the New Testament, there is a fairly profound change in the filling work of the Spirit. Whereas in the Old Testament, there is no encouragement, there is no command for believers to be filled with the Spirit. That filling was only reserved for certain individuals for very specific purposes. But now, in the New Testament, all believers, all believers are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul was writing to the Ephesian church in the midst of an extremely worldly and pagan culture. Basically, he's telling them to be filled, to be controlled or completely under the influence of the Holy Spirit rather than under the influence of that pagan culture. This filling is very different from baptism in the Spirit because baptism in the Spirit is never commanded. I've said this before. Uh, It's never uh, to be sought after. It is a sovereign work of God. Filling, on the other hand, is commanded. It is to be sought after. We should be pursuing the filling of the Spirit. We should be praying for it. And when we are fully yielded and in submission to the Lord, that is an indication that we are filled with the Spirit. Uh, This results in the Spirit's work in our lives in a number of ways. Um, So let me walk you through some of the truths about the filling of the Spirit. First of all, uh, as we've already seen, filling of the Spirit is commanded in Scripture, be filled with the Spirit, and commands uh, are not optional. It's not something that you can opt out of, okay? It is a command. So if we're not pursuing the filling of the Spirit, then we're actually falling into sin. We're being disobedient. We're commanded, so we're required to seek the filling of the Spirit. Next, the filling of the Spirit is an ongoing experience. The verb be filled in Ephesians 5.18 is in the present tense, So you could actually translate it as be being filled. And the implication is that we are to keep on being filled again and again. It's an ongoing experience, not a one-time occurrence like baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, That only happens once at conversion. Being filled with the Spirit is yielding yourself to the control and influence of the Spirit. 
And Paul makes a contrast in Ephesians with, rather than, again, being under the influence or control of alcohol, be filled or be under the influence and control of the Spirit. John MacArthur explains uh, it this way. I'm going to quote him. The best analogy of moment by moment yielding to the Holy, Spirit, Holy Spirit's control is the figure of walking, the figure Paul introduced in Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walking involves moving one step at a time and can be done in no other way. Being filled with the Spirit is walking thought by thought, decision by decision, act by act, under the Spirit's control. The Spirit-filled life yields to every step of the Spirit of God. And then, that's the end of the quote. Paul makes a similar reference uh, in Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. <clears throat> now, basically, this comes down to a dying to self. And says it is uh, intimately connected to our sanctification Okay, it is an area where we have to work, we have to take action, we don't let go and let God in the pursuit of the filling of the Holy Spirit, we have to die to self, we have to submit to all that Christ commands in his word, the word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we live our lives killing sin, killing self and disobedience, we fully submit to the lordship of Christ in all areas of our lives. We immerse ourselves in the word, being doers of the word, not just hearers of the word, and we walk in biblical wisdom. Now, we have to do this prayerfully, seeking the Spirit's enablement to will and to work for his good pleasure because it is not something, talked about this with sanctification last week, it is not something that we can do by our own willpower and determination. We absolutely need the enablement, the enabling grace of the Spirit in order to pursue the filling of the Spirit, okay? So now another truth about the Spirit's filling is that it can be hindered if we persistently continue in sin. That's why Paul tells the Ephesians to get rid of sins like drunkenness and be filled with the Spirit. And he tells the Corinthian church, to flee immorality because they're the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So continued sin, living in continual sin, grieves the Holy Spirit, and it quenches the Holy Spirit. It inhibits his filling of us, enabling us to walk in obedience. Now, on the other hand, being filled with the Spirit will produce Christ-likeness. It will produce the fruit of the Spirit that's described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That can only happen when we are fully yielded 
to the Spirit, when we are filled with the Spirit. Now, another result of being filled with the Spirit is it will grow our boldness to share the gospel, just as the disciples boldly proclaimed the good news at Pentecost, and Stephen, as he was being martyred, continued to preach because he was full of the Spirit, Acts 7.55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And if you read the whole context there, he's laying out the gospel for the Jews. So, if you have trouble sharing the gospel, prayerfully seek the filling and the empowerment of the Spirit. Don't try to go out there and do it on your own. Being filled with the Spirit will produce singing to one another in thanksgiving and submission. Paul, after commanding the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit, he goes on to describe what that's actually going to look like in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of that is in the context of being filled with the Spirit. So a Spirit-filled life will result in encouraging and ministering to one another, singing praises to God, being thankful for everything that we have and that we experience in Christ, and it will mean that we uh, are mutually submissive to one another. In other words, we are considering the needs of others above our own. We're serving one another. Spirit-filled life will result in us wanting to live in ways that please and honor Christ. We will be humble, we'll be teachable, we will be loving, and we will be godly in all of our relationships with one another. It's unity of the Spirit. Filling of the Holy Spirit is something that we are to pursue. And this, of course, like I said before, totally related to sanctification, Spirit's work in sanctification, where He works and we work. Enabled by the Spirit, the Spirit works. We seek to be filled by the Spirit. We intentionally pursue the filling of the Spirit, a life that's yielded in obedience and submission to all that is commanded in the Word that's inspired by the Spirit, and the Spirit empowers us to live godly, faithful lives. Now, you may experience at times overwhelming feelings of joy or extra zeal extra courage as you are filled with the Spirit, but the primary result of the filling of the Spirit will be growth in godliness, growth in obedience, and an increasing manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. I'd show them what scripture says. That's that's, but but you don't see that as as evidence of salvation. When you have people who are coming to faith and they don't speak in tongues, like the three thousand people in Acts, there's no mention of them speaking in tongues, and yet they're included in the church. 
which is baptism of the Spirit. And the fact that, you know, uh, it's predicted by John and Jesus that Jesus will baptize believers into the Holy Spirit, and what you see happening in Acts is that actually taking place, and the fact that Paul makes the the statement that this is actually inclusion into the body of Christ, that's everyone. And yet, not everyone speaks in tongues in Acts. So, yeah. So baptism in the Spirit is a one-time sovereign work of God. It is inclusion into the body of Christ, inclusion into Christ. Okay? That's it. It's a positional experience. Filling of the Spirit requires us to work, requires us to pursue. And we do that uh, prayerfully. We don't do it on our own power, but it is seeking to be living in obedience and submission to the Lordship of Christ. In other words, doing all that we've been commanded to do. You know, it's, it's not some mystical, well, it is mystical because the Holy Spirit is actually enabling us, but it's not some, you know, say it's, it's not some mystical feeling that we have. Um, it is not... Uh, evidenced by some miraculous uh, manifestation like speaking in tongues or prophesying or uh, as you see in some of the really aberrant forms of Pentecostalism and charismatic churches, people running around barking like dogs, okay, or holy laughter, which is this out-of-control, bizarre, almost demonic in appearance uh, manifestation. They would say that that is evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's nothing like that in Scripture. And you have to compare experience with what Scripture uh, says and reveals. Yeah, I would say it's a, it's, that's an example of quenching or grieving the Spirit because, we are, because you're not pursuing the filling of the Spirit. As we are filled with the Spirit... We walk in obedience. We live lives in submission to Christ. Okay, so if you're not, if you're not, if you're living in you know continual disobedience, you obviously are not being obedient to the command to be filled with the Spirit, which empowers and enables us to live in submission and obedience to Christ. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, true believer, that work of the Spirit will be completed. But it won't be completed until we are taken home to glory or Christ returns. You don't. I mean, we know them by their fruits, but ultimately we, we can't see a person's heart because there can be someone who is living in abs and I'm an example of that for a period of time in my life you there is no way you would have thought that I was a believer okay? but I was I'm convinced that I was born again and saved but absolutely prodigal okay 
That's not always the case, though. But God allowed that to go on for a period of time, and then he smacked me hard and brought me to repentance and a return to uh, living in obedience. Um, but yeah, we, we can know them by their fruits, but ultimately, we can't be absolutely certain of a person's salvation. If they profess to be a believer, you know, if they live in rebellion up to the moment of their death, probably not a believer. Yeah, talked about that last week or the week before, that the Spirit is actually praying for us, interceding for us. It's one of the works of the Spirit that we don't see. But, yeah, as we pray, uh, even if we don't pray, the Spirit is always praying for us, interceding. No. No, I don't have any evidence of that. Because you are constantly pursuing the yeah. filling of the Spirit by yielding and being obedient. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say consistent, persistent, ongoing sin. Yeah, hinders the filling of the I just know what it says there. Yeah. No. The Spirit is filling. I think it's that, yeah, it's just the indication of His, uh, the passion of His prayers for us, His intercession for us, understanding us in ways that we don't even understand, and the seriousness of our sin and lack of obedience and how. How serious that is. You know, he understands that because he is God. We don't. Certainly not to the depth that he understands. I think that's indicated by that groaning over our sin. And, yeah. Go ahead. So we do know some things, okay? We know what the will of God is, and we're supposed to pray in accordance with the will of God as it's revealed in Scripture. But there are things that we're unaware of in our own, in ourselves, you know, where we have blind spots or that we should be praying about, you know, uh, and we're unaware of those things. You know? Sometimes the Spirit works through other people to point out those areas of, of blindness that we have, to reveal it to us. But there's still areas of our lives that, that we don't know, those hidden sins, you know, and hidden faults that we have. The Spirit knows. We don't. Well, yeah. 
And I mean, there's things that we're, we're always supposed to be praying for one another. There's stuff going on in people's lives that we don't know, you know, not in detail or specifics. The Holy Spirit does. So as we pray for them, we, you know, we should be praying one way, and we may be praying in accordance with what's revealed in Scripture, but there may be very specifics about individuals or the church or, or ourselves that we're unaware of. Spirit knows. So next week, so we've got three more weeks, uh, probably the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and then the last session will be a wrap-up with a bunch of random things that the Spirit does. Uh, but probably next two weeks, we'll be uh, looking at the gifts of the Spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about tongues then. Not a lot more, but a little bit. Okay? You're dismissed.